A reoccurring theme on the podcast is the idea of failure and how failure stops and frightens people. So today I'm going to talk to somebody who's been very successful, but not about his successes. I do not care about this man's successes. We're going to talk about how he fell on his face again and again and again and pulled his ass right back up. So we're going to hit that music and then we're going to land on our asses. Joining me today is Barry Coffey, a music supervisor, composer, musician extraordinaire, a musical entrepreneur, and a man who has blown it so many times <laughs> that he doesn't even know where to start about that. Barry, how are you? <laughs> Great. This is, I'll have to say, this is a very unique uh, intro. <laughs> Welcome to The Biggest Loser. All right. You know, uh, I, I love it. I'll have to say this is the first time, uh, Bruce, that I've... Uh, Ever been introduced in that way? Uh, okay, great. Well, this is this will boy, oh boy. Can I? Uh, you're talking about failures. Oh my God! Yes, you've called the right guy. Well, of course. The reason I want to talk to you about failure is so many people in their lives will stumble, and that stumble will completely derail them. And it's hard for them to either grow and move forward, especially when it comes to issues of body and weight loss, especially when it comes into dreams. I have a lot of friends who have wanted to do things in their lives and they never did anything close to that, mostly out of a, what I perceive as a fear of failure. And I want to help people get over that block because it's such a fundamental stumbling point for so many people. So I thought through you, we could maybe get a game plan going or at least an understanding of how far you can fall and yet still grow and and really thrive. You, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my philosophy on it, which is was the best thing. You don't really ever fail. You succeed or you learn. There is no failing in it. There's You don't come away with something being diminished or taken away. And anyone who says, oh, did you see that guy try that thing and fall on his face? then you must not know anything about success. Everybody falls in their face. They may not make it public. I'm at the point now where I don't care. I'll give you 20 minutes to draw a crowd. Hey, watch me do this. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all. But, you know, we're in the entertainment business where everybody thinks you're delusional at the very beginning. Like if you grew up in normal, normal America. Sorry, like you were saying something. I was throwing in a joke where I was like, and in my case, actually delusional. But <laughs> yeah, well, you you want to think you're special in our world? Come on now, let's be real. I've got an employee of us, and it's like the you could you could definitely uh, get a whole mental health uh, you know studies program going on just on my employees. I've got <laughs> agoraphobics, I got bipolar, ADD. God, that's the majority of them. OCD. Like we've got more letters than uh, than PhDs. I'll tell you that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. You know, some of these things, ADD, that would be a real distraction in a certain world. If you're in the world of music business where things are flying at you, it's fun. If you've got ADD, I'm going to do this. I'll focus on that. I'll do this. Woohoo! It's the plate spinner. And then your OCD can really focus you on various tasks at hands, especially ones that are very, very detail-oriented, which a lot of behind the scenes of entertainment is a lot of really, really specific detail-oriented work that you've got to be able to focus on or otherwise you're just going to just melt. 
Yeah, well, then the other part of OCD that I'm struggling with right now is why must I go all the way around the block to go next door? <laughs> it's like, it can't be easy. I'll study every little thing. I can do this to study every little detail, every detail. Yeah, it was just that first idea you had. Ah, it is not efficient sometimes. It's precise, just not efficient. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so my background, why should you listen to me? I am a, when he wants the biggest loser, I've failed as an artist with a record deal on Warner Brothers. I had a record label distribution deal on Sony, failed. I've had, you know, been on multiple bad publishing deals. Any great thing in the music business you can fail at. Uh, all the big three, I got those. I'm an Emmy loser. Uh, I've written number one hits where I ended up getting one-sixth of the money. So not exactly a smart businessman. All of these different things that that uh, would be ma major disasters that have turned into my strengths. Uh, you know, and, and part of what I think people need to do, like when I'm looking at problems, I think of it as Star Wars three-dimensional chess. So there's the, the board of money. Did you make money? And that's a factor. It's a thing. But it can't be the only way you guide your success or failure because it doesn't tell the whole story. You go for power. Like, that's how I got the power. I can do this. I can do that. That's a good thing to have. The other thing is knowledge. What did you learn? So if you learn it, if you look at the three lenses of knowledge, power, and money, I think you can, you can put things into, uh, into a box where even if you didn't intend to, you might have intended to get money. Instead, you got knowledge or instead you, you networked, you met some people, you now have some more power, influence, you know. You can get these other things very seldom. It's sort of like you can't destroy matter. You can't, uh, there's no experience that is all bad, period. Nothing. It, that which does not kill you. So if you look at one of these other chessboards, you may find your financial disaster turned out to really give you gains in these other places. And the other thing you could say, I made a lot of money, but I didn't learn anything in these things. So money is a thing, but it's not the only thing. So whenever I'm trying to decide on something to be a smart use of my time, the trifecta is if it helps me in all three. Two out of three, it's a good deal. And if it's one out of three, okay. If it doesn't advance any of the three, please don't do it. There's no, there, there's no win for you there. But I mean, I mean, you could be trying for one and miss, but even if you miss, you're going to gain knowledge at the very least. And that has been my experience. Very few things in life are zero sum. And so many people view it just under that lens where it's, I succeeded, I failed, don't necessarily notice that they learned something and didn't notice that now somebody takes them a little bit more seriously, just very much focused on that bottom line. So I want to take you back to long before all of your successes to when you first started out, because the music industry, even years ago, was a very hard thing to get going in. Do you remember your first steps forward and your first stumbles? Well. I'll start with my parents graduated the class of 1960. So they thought that happiness was a place. So I went to, to 16 different schools to make it through high school. But my parents both could sing. So my, my brother and sister and I, we'd take these road trips and all this stuff. And it was like a four-part harmony. All right, here's your part. So I didn't know that everybody couldn't sing. So my parents were weird in that, uh, you know, they're the only people. My son, the musician, like it's a good idea, you know. So they had support in that way. I don't think they ever really thought I'd get to the levels that I did. They just, they just loved music, you know, so, and they were crazy. They were bringing in Peter, Paul and Mary protest songs and Broadway show tunes. My dad was all over doo-wop. And then he had an interracial, interracial doo-wop band 
that opened for Bill Haley and the Comets in in uh, at Hobart Arena in Ohio. So they they'd done a lot of stuff. And then, you know, they went through the 70s phase where my dad was cruising around with a huge porn star mustache listening to Barry White, you know. So I got a lot of different, uh, really bipolar kinds of musical influences. And I grew up and we ended up on one of the stops in Houston, Texas, where I uh, uh, went to the high school for the performing and visual arts, as did my brother and sister. And so I started with a really incredible fame school. It was like the second school of its type. Really incredible, great experience of that, you know, I just loved music and I thought it was cool, but I never really knew what I was doing. In fact, uh, I tried college twice and failed both times. I had an opera scholarship at one and did another stint at University of Houston. Just they didn't want to teach me what I wanted to learn. So I failed both of those. And I figured, what am I going to do till I decide what I want to be when I grow up? So I just started a band and started playing around in, in bars and stuff like that. And about three years in, I'm going, you know that thing that you're looking for, you think you're going to do? I kind of think you're doing it. You're making, you know, a living doing this. This may be a thing you can keep doing. And so that was, I really sort of woke up accidentally discovering that that was what I was going to do. And I know that, I don't know if that helps. It was more, more of a failure, but I was, it was a fallback position. I did a stall tactic that turned into a plan. That got you started. Yeah. And uh, and then I, you know, I, I grew up. Houston was a great market because uh, I was singing jingles, playing in bands. And I was really shitty at the beginning, like everybody else. My brother was my booking agent, which is even funny. My younger brother, he he kind of was the smooth talking sales guy out of out of our group. And he, and again, I was terrible. So they could only book me in terrible places. So I ended up playing at the ship channel at this place called the Harbor Lights, where they literally had chicken wire. And it was sailors and bikers and hookers. Oh, my. I mean, it was right by the ship channel. People would come in. And I mean, uh, it, it was quite a piece of work. And so I, I'd seen all these other artists and bands in town, like, going and talking to the audience. So we got on our break, and I'd go out talking to everybody, talk to this girl, and move over talk to this girl. We're up, you know, playing music. And I see, uh, I see the two girls talking to each other. Then it gets heated. Then they start fighting in the middle of the dance floor. You know, and I i don't know what I would have said, what I did, you know, but apparently they were fighting over me, I guess. And it was a, a kind of a biker chick and a small Hispanic hooker. And they're in the, and we've been told we started playing. They said, if a fight breaks out, you keep playing, God damn it. Don't you stop. You just don't you, whatever you want. Our people, we know how to deal with that. You keep playing. Here's a question I have about that. Yeah. I have a question yeah. about that. So you're playing, the fight breaks out. Do you match the tempo to the fight or do you hope that the fight goes to the tempo of your song? <laughs> That's your OCD kicking in. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> what we did is I was doing the, one of these nights by the Eagles and I was a bass player. So I'm going boom, boom, boom. So that was the longest fucking intro you've ever heard. And so the, the, the biker girl's way bigger. The little girl goes and she's wearing a tube top. If you, you know, probably before your time, but the little girl grabs the tube top, pulls it down. Everything falls out. She covers it and she starts wailing on it. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I'm going, well, if you had money on the shorter girl, go for the hooker every time. Yeah. Hooker takes biker in three rounds. Middle of a fight is not the time for modesty. You kind of have to just roll. You, you got to roll. No, no, she, she did not get that memo. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so I started in those things and by six years later, I kind of 
had risen to the top where I'm playing these the best clubs. We're having 300 people a night. I'd done, I was with the band and then we kind of had a parting of the ways because I had done a movie project and the owners didn't want me expanding out those things. I'd also wanted to take the band regional and the band kind of wanted to stay where we were. So they basically fired me. Another one of my great things. You're doing really well. You're fired. Yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, they, well, the, the owner put him on there and said, look, if, if Barry goes out and does this movie, we, I got a contract. I don't want him subbing out for two weeks. And I don't want you guys subbing out. If you guys do that, I'll, I'll cancel your contract. So he gave him, he put him in a rough position. Mm-hmm. Barry does the movie. The whole band has to move on. They said, we want to keep the job. Barry, you're fired. You know? So uh, I, I go to put together another band. And there were a couple of girls I went to high school with. They were great singers. And they didn't, nobody had hired them. Like one of them was working as a medical secretary. The other was teaching music at a Jewish, Jewish nursing home. Mm. And they're both black girls, you know, but they were really, you know, they were great. And I, and they, and I said, you know, I said, why aren't you guys singing? They're going like, nobody will hire us. I'm going, screw it. I'll hire you. So I put together a band with those guys. We start kind of doing some preliminary gigs to show everybody. And we bring the agents in and nobody will book us. And they pull me aside and they go, well, you got one color. That's okay. But you get two colors. See, they draw a colored crowd. The colored crowd, they don't drink, they don't tip. So the owners just won't go for it. Now, if you get rid of one of your black girls, you can have one, but you can't have two. And I just went, hmm. So then we don't have any place to play. So I'm thinking, where can I go? And I stumbled. There was a jazz club called uh, Baxter's that was right in the heart of Houston. And it had been sold and everything. It had been taken over and turned into a gay bar called the Club Flamingo. And the guys that are there are having, a, they're dying a horrible death. Nobody's coming to their bar. Nothing's going on. So I walk in and go, what you need is a band. Hallelujah. Me and my fine sisters here will entertain your fine gay folk in a way that you have never heard. So we go in. We, I say, give us a week. And so we start playing four days a week. And we took that club from nobody there to lines out the door. And I actually left to go to L.A. And they were still lines out the door. So it was, uh, you know. You could take a failure and turn it into something. And also, there's something to be said for sticking to your guns. You know, it seemed like a dumb move at the time, but morally, it just, it just didn't make any sense to me. And so that, that does, you know, there's a lot of people who say, hey, you can only succeed if you, if you give up your morals, if you play the game, if you do this. Once it starts to be giving up your morals, don't do it. You know, I can tell you, it may be a harder for the, in the short term, in the long term, I think that's that's worth fi- getting an extra fail or two, you know, to stick to your guns. I found that oftentimes when it's sort of like giving up your morals and trying to play the game like everybody else is playing it, it doesn't lead to much in the way of success because everybody's doing the exact same thing and it's all happening at such a dog-eat-dog level that you might succeed, you might fail, but it's really, really at that point a luck of a draw and in the end, you just leave a wake of misery behind you for yourself because then you've basically killed off most of your relationship. You've killed off most of your, generally speaking, the person a lot of people related to in the first place. Well, it's, it's can you look in the mirror? That's a real important thing. You know, if, if you feel like you're doing the right thing for the right cause, and the right reason, it's a lot easier to be daring. If you're going, I think I'm doing, I'm doing this because they said I sort of, it's people can sense insincerity. They can, they can sense a lie. Even people with no good lie meter 
going, I'm not buying this guy's really that at all. So Barry, I want to really get to where someone, where something really just punched your heart. I want to hear about where in your heart you died a little. What was the failure, the thing that your hopes were highest, the crash brought you to your lowest, and how did you cope with it? Bleed for my people, Barry. Bleed. <laughs> um, let's go. For, you want to go for the high end, most dramatic one first? Of course, I want it as dramatic as humanly possible. If you cry, that would be good. Okay, well let's. Yeah, yeah, we'll go go there. Uh, so I was nominated for an Emmy. I wrote a song called "How Do You Talk to an Angel," or co-wrote that with Stephen Stephanie Tyrell. It was oh God, a TV show. The, the Heights. That's the Heights. Yeah, yeah, the Heights. So I I actually wrote that song to help sell the pilot to Spelling. And then it went on to be in there, went on to be created as the theme song. And the song had its own life on popular radio. It was, you couldn't avoid that song. God, I got to hit you at some point. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was number one. It was number one in airplay for six weeks and couldn't get to the top spot because Boys to the Men, End of the Road was selling too many records. Mm. So it waits and finally gets up there. And it's in on number one for two weeks, and up screaming up the chart comes Whitney Houston's "I'll Always Love You" and bangs us out, you know. Uh, so, but yeah, so so we were during a part in 1993. There were for six months there were only three songs that were number one in our country, and one of them was mine. So do that, get nominated for the Emmy, first time. So you're you know I'm still struggling, not set financially. So they go. Uh, my parents had moved out to L.A. You know, to be close to me and stuff like that. They were basically staying in my guest house, you know, kind of thing. And uh, uh, and and I'm going. Do I take my parents? Because you know, we're really tight money wise. And I go. You know what? Because it's three. At that time, it was three hundred fifty bucks a ticket to bring them. Um, so I'm going. All right, let's do it. So I'm I'm kind of hawking my my rent money to uh, to take them. And then I didn't know enough about this, so. I'm going, let's go all out. Let's rent a limo. Well, if you don't rent a limo early on Emmy night. So we end up with a baby blue limo that's done three drop-offs already. So they pick us up 30, 40 minutes late. So we're late to the Emmys. So we get there. We finally get in the get in the, in the the place. And I'm there. We, My wife had taken my, my mom out. We bought her a brand new dress and all this stuff and really made a big deal. We get there late. We get there just in time. And this is like... And in awards presented earlier, so we're not even in the, the great on TV thing. We're in the sort of the ghetto pre pre one. Right. And we lose. Right there, we we lose. It's the Candor and Ev, super famous writing guys, or something they wrote for Liza Minnelli. They don't even show up to the award. You know, they've won so many. They don't give a crap. And people are dancing around with their with their Emmys. And I am not happy. You know, and I, I understand like it's it was best words and music, and you're going. I don't achievement. I don't know what we could have done. We actually, the song kept the stupid TV show on two extra weeks because the ratings weren't good, but they were too embarrassed to cancel a show with a number one hit song. So we actually get to, got to make it through the whole run. I felt like we'd done everything and it was really kind of depressing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have interrupted that, but I have to, I have to ask because I've never had the opportunity to ask this before. So you're sitting there doing the whole presentation in that way that they do it with the anticipation building. And I've only seen it on TV. So I don't know if in reality it plays out the same way it looks like it does on TV. But you're sitting there with all this anticipation. How does that go? How in that moment 
it's bad because it was like in, in the earlier ones, you're not sitting like in an auditorium thing. It's a dinner show. You've got, you know, they've got wine and stuff. You're like at somebody's bad wedding. <laughs> so everybody's, you're sitting there. And uh, I can't, I get confused because I've done so many of those things, whether BMI awards or other things like that. But there was somebody, obviously my co-writers were there. I had my mom and dad. And then we had somebody super famous with us. I can't remember. It was somebody from Holland, Dozier Holland or Ross Vanelli, Gino Vanelli's brother. Like it was like you know, somebody really famous was at our table with us. The thing that BMI does, you know, in those things in the Emmys, you just don't know. But some of the other award shows have ways to mitigate that. But you just you're sitting there. You've got a good table because you're nominated. You're building up and they just they walk up on a stage and announce to guys and somebody grabs an award. But without half the fanfare. So for, for everyone you see on TV, there's probably three or four people getting it in the dark of night. And the best costume helper, you know, whatever, you get yours in the quiet. And so you're sitting there and it's building up, building up, and you're you're going, oh, please let me win, please let me win, please let me win. Oh shit. You know, who I didn't know who those guys are, you know. <laughs> that you you're you're supposed to be like you think of the Emmys as being this exciting place. It is dark as anything. Because four out of five of these people are losers like me. And the winners are kissing each other and hanging. And here, do you want to hold it? I'm going, I, I, I want to hold it. You know, it's like you, you get to see everybody dancing around and having happy. I've got my parents there. We, we leave. Uh, and, and, uh, and I'm going, man, this is, this is the dream. Like, you know, I'll tell you how stupid I was, too. When I was trying to decide whether or not to take my parents, I actually thought maybe I'll take them next time. Oh my God, there is one music award a year on planet Earth for the Emmys, and you think you'll wait for your next one? House and every, I don't, I didn't even know what thought press I did that. I, I, I thought that it was, I'm so glad I took them, you know, but it, it was really, you know, it's like that's one of those moments where you did I do the right thing. At, at the end of that, I thought, I've wasted this money. I, I, I'm struggling to pay my rent. I'm going to be late on everything. And I took my parents out to, to watch me lose. A horrible, I never factored to me, come on, mom, watch your boy get crushed. This will be great, you know? And then we can have that long, awkward limo ride home. This will be fantastic, you know? And that's what I, I paid for. A lot of money and stuff. And you're going, this is the worst thing ever. And two weeks later, my mom actually passed away. She died in her sleep. And that was the last time that we were together was at the Emmys. At that point, I went, best money I ever spent. Different, different playbook, different deal, but definitely a low moment that turned high. I can absolutely relate to that. First off, as a mama's boy who has not, whose mother passed away as well, I really, really sympathize with that because you never truly fully ever get over if you've got a good relationship with your parents. And for all of the little stuff that I've done, I had a short film featured at the 2019 Comic-Con. The entire time I was going through that weekend, in the back of my mind, it was like, if only my mother was here. I, I just just really would have been nice to see. I haven't made it by any stretch of the imagination. But just to see this, this would have just validated everything. You lost, but that still was a moment of deep, deep pride for her. Oh, and my wife really did it great because when they went to look for dresses, she said, her son's being nominated for an Emmy. And I mean, L.A., can they kiss some ass on that? 
oh, let me get you this. Like she got Queen for a day. Like when you look at, at that, if you if you you couldn't give a better parting gift for a mother that, hey, you know what? That wacko son you've got, he's gonna be okay. Yeah. You know, he's gonna be, you know, he's got this stuff going on. And and she always thought that you know, was always supportive, but you know, how do you hear the strings when there's nothing there? Like, you know, all of the stuff she she felt like was really amazing and cool. And not not every mother would. No. And it's it's special. And that and that kind of that goes back to the whole idea of failure to a degree of success because for you, you lost, but from her eyes, you were nominated for an Emmy. You were one in an entire music industry. You were one of four or five people who was recognized at the top of their game. And it's her little boy. Yep. And she had that feeling, you know, my dad and my mom were both like, they, they, I don't think they ever thought they'd be sitting in those seats. Yeah. Nor did I, you know, it's like not something that you think that that's going to happen. Like we, we could all hope and dream, but when you're sitting there for real, they can't take that away. Like if I don't do anything else, I'm, I'm still going to be Emmy nominated Barry. It's an achievement that, that means something to people. And also probably gave you cachet you did not have previously. You bet. And things that I, that I, I used moving forward. It still was, it was dark and it, it, it isn't like I popped back over. Like, you know, you don't, because you, you, you really thought if I could just get into that room in that, at that setting, my life will change automatically. And it doesn't. It's a nice little factor. It's a nice little helping thing. You know, it's really a journey. It's not a destination. You don't arrive. No, much as, no matter how many people say, you've arrived. Yeah, you got to the party. That's all you did. You know, that's what arriving is. That doesn't mean you're thriving. It doesn't mean anything else. It means you're at the party. Congratulations. There is no real destination in the end. It's you just continue. We're always keep walking. Yeah, you think that, okay, I'm going to get there. And then you get to where you thought there was. And it's like, well, there's still this to do and there's still that to do. Or there's no there there. Yeah. That's the real thing. That's the killer. I thought I was there and there is no there. The there, the, the place, the safe place where we all relax and go, here's us guys who made it. Yeah, that, that, that place doesn't exist. Not in that room, not in the Oscars, not in the Grammys. None of these rooms are, are a stopping or staging or I'm on home base. You know, you can't hurt me here. No, not true. So I think gauging things like success and failure, it's, You've got to have successes along the journey. Hey, this is a signpost. I'm on the right road. That's really all you should expect from success. You learn a lot more from failure. Like when, when things really work, you have theories, you have thoughts. You don't have a clear reason because like you've heard that, uh, uh, that success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. When it's success, oh, the makeup guy did it, and this guy did it. Everybody wants to take credit for the great success. When it fails, ah, it wasn't me; it was somebody else. You know, nobody takes, nobody claims their their failures. To me, I'll claim them. Yes. You know, if if I look back and go, I screwed this up. That's the only way you learn. You have to be able to stare at the truth. And then sometimes, if it's not, if it's something you fail because of something not in your control, why are you losing any sleep over? Shit happens. You know. That was not, if you, if you could honestly go, that wasn't my fault. I couldn't have foreseen that. 
then then go to sleep. It is a skill to be able to look at a situation dead on without filtering it as uh, as a positive or a negative or seeing yourself as the hero or the victim just to see it not positively, not negatively, but as it really exists. A fact. Yeah. Yeah. If you can do that, like you've got to take the emotion out of it. So what I've learned to do, if I'm emotional about something, I do not make a decision if I can possibly help. Walk away, overanalyze, do whatever you can do, get the emotion out of it because you can't make a good decision if you've got bad information. If you're triggered by this or emotional about that or whatever, if it's feeding something emotional for you, I, I need this win. Well, do you, you know, if you're already thinking that that way, take a break, do something else, you know, uh, really. So you can just make a logical thing and don't put a bunch of weight on it. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I've always had the, um, a survival tactic I've employed is if I've gotten into, a deal, a dealing with somebody whom really, really upset me, I will go off, but not on them, not anywhere around them. I will just allow myself in front of my girlfriend or a friend or whatnot. I will just say everything I need to say and get it out. And then I'll sit down and write the email. And I will make sure having got out all the emotion then, I can then make the communication devoid of any kind of accusations, recriminations, and make it very factual. Well, the thing that, here's, here's my big beef. I think that you cannot communicate well. It, the, to me, the last resort is writing an email. It's the, it gets misconstrued more than any other form of communication. You can't tell if it's a joke or they being snarky. There's no way to communicate correctly. It's a lot better to call them up and go, hey, you know, once you're unemotional, here's the things I think that we, we, I was expecting this and I was expecting that, you know. This is what I thought we'd agreed to talking in those terms. When you put it in writing, uh, it's never going to be delivered as well as you could orally. I do agree with that. When I advise people, I go as a last resort. If it's something contentious, it's like breaking up with your girlfriend. Don't do it on a text. <laughs> Don't do it with an email. You know, be a man and do it and have an ebb and flow and take your punishment. Take your spanking. Even if it's I got to say I'm sorry. It's not an I'm sorry email. It's a call them up. It's a meet them for coffee. Look them in the eyes and go, yeah, I blew this. You know, I didn't know she was your sister at the time. And anyway, no. Uh, yeah, you got to be able to say what, whatever it is that it'll be better for them and ultimately better for you. I mean, most of us hate conflict and don't want to do it. But the idea is to try to be, you know, be prepared to weather a storm of them going off on you. And then keep it calm. Do all the things that you did in the email. Just do them verbally. It is like any other skill. Having hard conversations is something you learn, especially if... It's an acquired skill. Yeah. I had to learn it over a period of various projects because I didn't want to have these conflicts. But then things didn't happen the way they should. So I had to learn how to... All right, I know you don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to have this conversation. But let's talk about it and let's get to the bottom of it. And then we'll be fine, especially with money. It's hard to have those conversations until you learn how to have them. Yeah. And, and, and uh, the other thing I do, too, is I don't um, something's gone bad. You've got a bad relationship. You've had a bad business deal. Uh, I sort of like Star Wars. I think you've got energy for good or bad. Pick one. 
If you're going to sit around hating them, I'm going to get back at them, blah, blah, blah. Well, there you go, Darth Vader. Welcome to the dark world. To me, I would rather go with the, the adage of the best revenge is living well. You know, it's like whatever, you know, whatever you're doing, go do something good for you, not something bad to them. I've known so many people who just get mired into the negativity. I mean, my own brother who wanted to be a chef and wanted to have his own restaurant was so stuck in a negative mindset that even when the opportunity presented himself, he was unable to take advantage of it because he was somewhat insulted by the way it was presented to him instead of realizing, hey, your entire dream was there. And just, I know so many people who are at base level, never going to get anywhere, never going to accomplish anything because they can't let go of bad feelings. And it just drags them down. Well, if people can sense that, they can sense the anger, the animosity, it's it permeates the room the other thing i i think you know one of the problems i had as a producer was i got to the point where i i was really frustrated with the artists it's like look you need to do this kind of record this kind of way this kind of thing i wanted them to look at all my credits and and shut up and do what i want you know uh look I'm, i i know better than you you don't even know what you're talking about just let me do what i did and i had to quit I, I spent a couple of years where I quit producing because I wouldn't ever, as, as an artist, I wouldn't want somebody telling me what to do on my record. It's ultimately the artist's record. Your job of being a producer is to realize their dream, not yours. If you want to make the same record again and again and be David Foster, get a new singer, put them on your record with your team. They all sound the same. Some will win, some will lose, you know, but it's a David Foster record. But if you're going to be, a, a real uh, producer and be help support the artist in their art, you may have to walk them around the block to take them next door. And ultimately what I had to learn is if my vision for the artist and their vision for themselves didn't match, walk away. And that's really hard because it feels like a failure. You know, you feel like I, I want to be taller. I could be shorter, you know, or if you see them going, well, I could do what you want, but you could tell they don't, they don't feel it. If you make that record, the first negativity that comes along, hey, I think those songs are a little too hard. I told you they were hard. The artist will bail on you and the record will fail, guaranteed. If you're not making the record that they believe in, it has little hope of being there. It's a matter of chemistry. Be, don't be afraid to, yeah, walk away. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do, but you have no business doing that person's record. And also, like to your brother's thing, I have a bad news about respect. There's only one way you get it. You earn it. Mm -hmm. They can look at all the credits and stuff like that. But until you say something smart, until you say, no, you got to do it this way, until you earn their respect, they, they don't have it. You could be somebody, you could be there. They could be your hero. And you could want to respect them. But at the end of the day, if their opinions are different than yours, they're just another guy. It's when they go and build a relationship of, wow, he's smart. Wow, that's even cooler. They got to go earn it. So if you're, you have to be ready to go on a job interview every single project and if you're not willing to do that find another job because when it comes to the creative thing respect only comes by being earned and it's in self-respect too you don't respect yourself if you don't go out and do stuff if you're the person who sits on the sidelines and thinks you're safe because you've never failed well the biggest failure is never trying that's true i think for most people with that never trying if you don't try you maintain the illusion you could have done that I had an artist friend. He wanted to be a 3D artist. And he went to school. He spent his entire waking time making art. 
Once he graduated, he never applied for one job. He always had an excuse why, but ultimately he was afraid he would be rejected, he was afraid he would fail, so he never became an artist, despite the fact being really good. And it didn't matter. Since he never tried, he never failed. He never lost. And it's broke my heart. I would contend that that's that's the biggest failure. Yes, I agree. Yeah, But that's the way he saw it. So it's, it's one thing if the world says, you know what? You're delusional. You're not good enough. At least you know. Hey, I gave it a try. Like a trying to me is a badge of courage. To see trying something and failing as a failure. It, you tried this and you realize, hey, man, maybe I shouldn't be an artist. Now I'll go find something I should do. The, the second best answer in the world is a quick no. Yes, you can do this is always the ultimate, but the second best is, dude, you suck. You have no talent in this. Let me save you some heartache. You know, it's like quick yes. And again, you can go against that. You know, maybe they're delusional. Maybe you need to just get better. It doesn't mean you have to listen to what they say, but you have to get out there and you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find that prince. That is absolutely true. Let's see. Have we covered this topic well? The, the, the failure yeah, topic? Yeah, the failure topic. Keep going. I can give you some more failures. Yeah. I think we've skirted on a lot of the, the, the real main things about failure. Uh, um, I think as somebody who runs a company, I think the way that you treat mistakes and failures and problems in your company with your culture, you have, like in my company, I make it very clear that it is okay to screw up. And whenever I screw up, man, I raise my hand, my bad. Everybody is able to do that. We make fun and jokes of failures. Like we have a, a software for, for finding music for film and TV. And anyone who's gotten the keys to the back end to add a genre or something like that has effed up and done catastrophic damage. And so we really limit the number of people that have that. My personal thing is I deleted every single country song in the entire database. <laughs> I had one of my other people delete all the sound effects. And the coding guy who built it wouldn't tell us what he deleted. <laughs> but apparently, yeah, it's a 100% failure rate. So we really limit the number of people that uh, that have that ability. But you can't like you can't make it a big deal. Like we have a problem, the bullets are flying. Oh my god, this is wrong. We go, let's fix the problem. We're not talking about who did what or pointing any fingers because the industry doesn't care. I need this song by now. Get it to me. I wanted this. That didn't write. Whatever. It's it's fix the problem first. Figure out how it doesn't happen again second. And so you can't go too many people, especially in the arts, you don't get to say, not my fault. A corporation, a big company, if you can assign blame to someone else, it's really good. But in, in the creative thing, they don't give a crap. They just know I hired your company to do this and you didn't get it done. I hate every one of you. You're all on my blacklist. So you all go down together. It's a team sport. So thinking that you can Teflon Don your way out of that. Good luck with that. I haven't seen people have much luck. That's a good philosophy to run a company with. At most, I did freelance stuff, and almost every corporation that I had as a client was eating itself from the inside for all the various blame casting and oh, yeah. lack of responsibility because nobody was really responsible until we chose a scapegoat. What's more assignable than responsible? Who can we put this on? You know, to me, I, I always make fun of those kind of things. You know, uh, uh, we, we, we have, uh, like when I was in the recording studio, one of the things I do as a producer is at the beginning of the day, we say, okay, we need a scapegoat. Who's it going to be today? All problems, all mistakes, all everything. You, 
Who was the last guy at the session? Drummer? Everything's your fault. Everything. So we'll be playing, the guitar player will blow a take. Ah, oh, Bill, why'd you do that? And it's the drummer. Everything. You know, I'm sorry, I got to go again. I missed that part, Bill. You know, so, and it becomes a joke right. and, it, and it makes, it seems funny, but it makes it so you can't, if you're afraid to make a mistake in the in the recording studio, you'll never get greatness. Like, you've got to be not afraid to go for it. And some of the most amazing things happen when you're going for it. You don't think you're going to make it or you play that other weird quarter. I'm going to try this. So many of the craziest things in the world started as a mistake that you go, wait, that sounds good. Let's go in that direction. Like, uh, just the way you are, Billy Joel, too. They cut it all these different ways. They cut it as this, that, and the other. The drummer, as we would have it, Liberty, goes, you know what, dude? How about this? Let's try it as a bossa nova. And starts playing a bossa nova group, and they all play it. They record it as a joke. It's a joke all the way to number one. The bossa nova version, that's a bossa nova groove on just the way you are. That became a number one hit. And they did it for fun because one guy was crazy. And so you got to be open to open to crazy, open to different stuff, and not if you're afraid to fail is almost a kiss of death in the recording studio. I'm like you'll never get a great vocal if you're afraid of it. Like when I put a key for a singer, singers will always fight you and try to go. Oh, I want to have it where it's comfortable. I can make every note. Uh, uh-uh. I want it where the highest note in this song. You got a fifty-fifty shot of making. I want that urgency of oh, is he going to get that high note? Yes or no. We don't know because you can't fake that urgency. And you only got to get it right once. You get it wrong 99 times, get it right the one time we get it on tape. That's all I need. Yep. We tour and everything, we'll lower it by a key for the live show. But for the record, I need in the moment urgency, real desperation, and I'll do anything to get it. And risk the failure. Oh, there's no risk in failure. There's a risk in not failing, you know? Yeah. No, you got you to yeah, be okay with failure. You got to make friends with it. It's, uh, you know, and also too, there's sometimes like, like I would never do this to another singer, but I was working on my own record and I'm like a slow warm up. So I suck for the first 30 minutes. No big deal. 30 minutes came and went. And I was still sucking. And at a point I realized I don't have it today. So I told the, the engineer, I said, you know what? I got a great idea. Do you want to go to a movie? So we went. Called the session. I would, I would, it would crush most singers. You could never do that with. But with me, I didn't give a crap. We went to the movie. We came back. The whole thing I was cratering on did it in one take. So I've never forgotten that. Where you go, like, yeah, sometimes there is a time to wave the white flag, surrender, take a break, call it a day. I, I don't know if you do this, but but I I treat uh, the music business like Vegas. So if I start out my day and it's really going good, I go, who else can I call? Let me check on that other job. I think that the, that's like Vegas. I'm on a hot streak. Give me every good thing. If I'm failing, and I, I try to pull myself out of it, but if pretty much halfway through the day it's a shit show, I go, well, let's just let's just bring this on. Who else? Am I, who? What's that other contentious argument I want to have? Let's call this guy. Let's do it all today. Bring this on, you know. And uh, and I've had real success with that because then you got all these things you didn't want. You're only depressed for one day. You kind of consolidate it into a really horrible day. And then my other thing, if it's really bad and I really can't take it, it's let's quit. Game's over. Curl up in a ball. Have something to drink. Have something to eat. Quit. This day's over. I lost. Let's go. Retreat. Run away. My writing partner, when we were writing our the, the script that we'd worked on, we would we would just hit mental blocks and be like, uh, 
All right, screw it. We're playing rock band for four hours. Exactly. Time out. We're, we're done. We would play like a 20 song set and then, then we'd go back to writing. And now we've relaxated. We've had fun. And now the creative process kicked back in. So that was like, yep. like that was built in for all of the writing sessions we did. Well, when, yeah, when you're, yeah, when you're in the studio too, the band will suddenly, they'll start playing their favorite song. It's like, who's playing Stairway to Heaven? Oh my God. You know, they'll do stuff to just get it out, you know? They'll, the drummer will start, the whole band will start jamming something crazy. Switch instruments. Yeah, well, they don't do that or I'll kill them. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, they, it does give you a chance to sorbet, sort of to be ready for the next course. He cl- cleanses the palate, for lack of a better word. Barry, you've taken us through a nice little journey and you've given a lot of good points on how to deal and how to view failure and how to work with it. Do you have any additional advice? or thoughts that you might share with the audience? I guess when it comes to failure, one of the the quotes that I like a lot is a a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others. There's there's some mistakes you can avoid if you're really mistake averse. Uh, The other thing is if you want to help someone climb a mountain, if you want to climb a mountain, help someone else climb it first. So if really, if, if mistakes are a real tripping block for you, Help somebody else see their mistakes. Do research. How did they do it? There's ways if that really is your, your you want to avoid mistakes, you can certainly limit them or make new ones. So that's one way if you want to, you know, that would be uh, another way to be smart about the mistakes. But I, I think that you have to own them, embrace them. Uh, I'm not a big fail early and often. Uh, I think I, I'm a little bit, I, I don't like to make mistakes. I don't, you know, they do bug me. So I try to be a little more thoughtful about what I'm doing and try to try to get as much education to limit the number so I can start further down the road. But I think their mistakes are unavoidable. Uh, you should uh, you either succeed or you learn, though. I don't think you could ever see them as, oh, I made that one giant fatal mistake. If you're still breathing, it's not a fatal mistake. That's awesome. That's and I fully agree with that. So, Barry, where can people find you? When they're not finding you here. Well, if you are a filmmaker or a TV show person or something like that, I've got a company called musicsupervisor.com and we uh, do music services for films and TV. We can do everything from finding you a single song, clearing a Beatles song, uh, giving you a composer, anything that you need to help you do that. We specialize in indie films a lot, you know, with that company. We also service the bigger guys, but if you're making a movie, that's the place. If you're an artist who wants to put your music in a movie or wants to to kind of uh, do stuff with music, recorded music that you've got and that you own, then you go to We Get Artists. And that's where we kind of put together a library. We help present people to films. We we actually do licensing of music for sonic branding around the world. Uh, we supply music to 200 Italian grocery stores, and Swedish eyeglass huts, French water parks, all the Walmarts in Chile. So we try to find ways for people to... Uh, to make money off their music. And then the last thing we have is a nonprofit called Sustainable Artists, where a bunch of industry people, we join in to try to help people learn how to make a movie. So those are the three places. So it's uh, musicsupervisor.com, wegetartist.com, and sustainableartist.org. And as for me, I am the fittest fat kid you know, and here I am. I have socials, and they are at fittest fat kid. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, also on Facebook, 
If you have a story, if you have a question or a concern, you can always reach out to me at hi there at fittestfatkid.com. And now, finally, by the grace of the universe, my website is up and it is shockingly www.fittestfatkid.com. So, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing, hold yourself accountable, but do it with kindness and understanding. And I'll talk to you next week.